Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. You know, MediaPath is more than a podcast. It turns out that we're the world's cultural touchstone. What? And I say the world's because we're getting into more countries each week. Huh. Maybe we'll have more on that. We're, we're, we're in Canada and Portugal lately, right? So that's a good thing. Right. This week, we, we have an embarrassment of riches. Two guests. We're going to welcome back Brad Onishi, one of the hosts of Straight White American Jesus podcast, which is currently the most listened to religion and politics podcast in the country. We talk about folks who have successfully escaped their evangelical roots and live to talk about it. And joining Brad will be Scott Okamoto, who joins Brad uh, uh, w- with his own podcast, and he, he's part of a, a collective called the Dauntless Media Collective, a, a group of like-minded podcasters. Scott's podcast is called Chapel Probation. I just love the title. It's a, it's a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, and he also has a new book called Chapel Probation, and we're going to talk about that as well. So, Wheezy, what do you have for us this week? Well, Fritz, I went to the movies, uh, and I saw The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti's new movie is called The Holdovers. I hope it, you liked it. Yeah, I loved it. It is a Christmas movie anti-hero. It's the age-old tale of a broken band of mismatched misfits finding friendship and family in one another. This version of that story is beautifully told. The setting is a bucolic New England prep school at Christmas break in 1970 when a loathed and lonely teacher finds himself babysitting a handful of students with nowhere to go. Paul Hoonam likes to address his students as fetid layabouts, and his caustic barbs will quickly become the stuff of holiday tradition. Along for this sad holiday ride is the school's head cook, Mary, who has just lost her only child in Vietnam. A rich dad helicopter soon swoops in to fly most of the kids off to a ski holiday, but the brilliant and bitter Angus is a lone holdover with unreachable parents to offer permission. He's left alone in a lovely and empty campus with Paul and Mary. As the characters navigate through their holiday internment, they discover that revealing and owning their own flaws and deficiencies only provides space for them to reach out and offer comfort, serving to strengthen their bonds. These three each manage to pull themselves out of their own anguish long enough to offer a healing helping of humanity. Divine Joy Randolph, as Mary, barks at Paul Giamatti's Mr. Hunum. You don't tell a boy who's been left behind at Christmas that nobody wants him. What is wrong with you? We heal ourselves by helping others. The film reunites director Alexander Payne with actor Paul Giamatti. The two last work together in Sideways. Dominic Sessa plays Angus Tully. It's his first role. He's actually 33 years old. So just imagine that he was really held back. The Holdovers is in theaters. And we've got a little Divine Joy Randolph Film Festival going on today, Fritz. She turns herself out as Mahalia Jackson in your recommendation, Fritz. And I adore her also. In and old- she also sings her own it, Yeah, and this. she's also it's in It's brief. Old- yeah. But I know I'm going to like your movie. You know why? Why? Because somebody got an F plus on a paper. You never see that. F plus. That's pretty little, good. That's a little Who grace. Who do you know that got an F plus? It's a little grace for the holiday. All right. I'm going to do a Netflix uh, special. It's a, a film called Rustin. There have been many great films in the last five or 10 years about the civil rights movement. You had Selma, The Butler, I Am MLK Jr., Mississippi Burning, one of my favorite movies of all time. But not one has investigated the life of someone considered a civil rights icon, Bayard Rustin. He helped organize the Civil Rights March on Washington in 1963. Of course, that was the site of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Rustin was a black activist who pursued nonviolent protest and was a key aide to Dr. King. 
He was also gay. This movie highlights the battles Rustin had getting the march organized and bucked the headwinds of homophobia in America in the 50s and 60s. As a matter of fact, racist politicians and the FBI used his gayness to try to stop the march altogether. You'll see most of the major players in the civil rights movement. Rustin is played by Coleman Domingo wonderfully. Chris Rock plays Roy Wilkins, who is the national head of the NAACP. You see Coretta Scott King. You see Adam Clayton Powell. Not a nice guy. Boo. No. The late Congressman John Lewis is in there. It's directed by George C. Wolfe, who directed Angels in America on Broadway and many other plays. It's also co-written by Dustin Lance Black, who Ooh. wrote Milk, which him. was an... Oh, my God. He's a great writer. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, that was an Oscar for Sean Penn. He's also written other social justice films like We Will Rise about the struggle for gay rights and Jay Edgar with Leo DiCaprio playing He Hoover. has a really great documentary about his own life, too. He does? Yes. Where is it? Uh, I will get back to you. Please. Look, look for this in the have show your, notes. Have your, have your staff look at yes. that. <laughs> this film is produced by Barack and Michelle Obama under ah, the deal they have with Netflix. They're supposed to be good. They're... Him. When the march happens, it was expected to bring in 100,000 people, ended up with 250,000 people. It's goosebump-inducing. It's a great piece of civil rights history. I recommend it to all. Acting is wonderful on all accounts. I watched it last night, and not spoiler alert, because there is the march on Washington, but they actually infuse it with archival footage, footage. and you cry. <laughs> oh, come on, you do. You look across the reflecting pond yeah. where you can't see anything but humanity for a mile. It's spectacular. It's and really ha- yeah. it's really wonderful. Yeah. All right, we're going to bring in Brad Onishi and Scott Okamoto. I'm so happy to talk to these guys. This is going to be an interesting conversation. Brad is a social commentator, a scholar, a writer. He currently teaches at the University of California, San Francisco. He's the co-host of the podcast Straight White American Jesus, which discusses radical conservatism and extreme religions and is a support be uh, sort of a support group for people who have had a change of heart he's got a book coming out called prepping it's out it's out now mm-hmm. prepping for war the extremist history of white christian nationalism and what comes next so welcome to brad and scott we're so happy to have you guys Great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having us. Uh, let me talk about Scott's record here. Yeah. Uh, he, he is a writer and a musician. He's a fourth-generation Japanese-American ex-evangelical. He has a book called Asian-American Apostate with biting humor and thoughtful commentary about becoming an elapsed, not an elapsed, a lapsed evangelical in colleges and universities. Now I'll give you your welcome. Brad, I, I, I need to know something because the title of your book scared me. Are, is there? Do you really feel that there is a war coming because that's my fear. I feel there's a war coming. I feel that we're on the banks of a civil war right now. Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things I try to make uh, clear in the book is that um, one one group of Americans has been preparing for war for for going on half a decade. That they think their country got stolen from them. You know, a white Christian nationalist in the '60s. You know, the the moment you were just talking about with with the March on Washington. They feel like at that time in in history. Uh, the civil rights movement, the Voting Rights Act, immigration reform, women's liberation, queer liberation, all of this didn't lead to progress. It led to the country being stolen right out from under them. So they have been plotting to take America back for God ever since. And so they have been preparing for war for a long time. The Trump presidency, January 6th, I think showed us the extent uh, to to which they will go. And so my hope is that we're not on the brink of, of a new civil war, but 
I'm trying to warn people that there is a group of folks ready to fight that war, and they have been for decades already. It just feels like we're there. I mean, it's really scarier things happening every week. And now the big split between the Palestinians and the Israelis, everything, there's a chasm between all forms of thought right now. It's really kind of scary. Well, everyone wants to be on a side and, you know, we're losing that perspective that some of these issues are extremely complicated. And like with Israel and the Palestinians, if you're on either side, you're wrong because this is both everyone. Want, I, I, I pray for peace and understanding in the Middle East. That's my prayer regarding that. It's so complicated. That goes back for centuries. Our country goes back for hundreds of years. And because we've been a pluralist nation and because we we attempted to eradicate the native people and because we stole people and used them as free labor while we owned them, we have a lot of wounds and we have to address those and we're not really willing to. And so people for decades, as you talk about, Brad, have been wrapping their racism in religion and in morality and, you know, and all these things, family values or what's good and right. And it's rotten at the core. So talk more about the original wounds. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that uh, these are things that we can talk about going all the way back to the doctrine of discovery and the idea that if you are a Christian person from Europe. You had a right to colonize any land you found that was filled with non-Christians. Uh, we can talk about, of course, uh, the Middle Passage and the institution of slavery and uh, all the way forward. And I think for me, uh, you know, those wounds have never been addressed, as you say. And what happens when you don't uh, address them is uh, they reopen time and time again. And uh, you see folks proposing that the way to deal with them is just to ignore them to ban books, to make as if that history didn't happen, to try to argue that to bring it up is divisive in itself rather than to address it. Now, that that is given another dimension when people do that in the name of God, because when you bring God in, you provide a cosmic dimension, you provide a metaphysical dimension to your uh, your understanding of your, your country and yourself. You tell a story that is imbued with divine significance, and it gives it all that much more weight. So, Brad, about that topic, I, I, I think, I, I, I don't think, I wonder uh, about how racism plays into this. Going back to the Tea Party movement, whether they admit it to themselves or not, that was based on a racist reaction to the Obama administration. And But do they even admit it to themselves? Do they consider it just a, like a conservative political movement? Or do they understand it's racism and they're just trying to sell it to a larger audience? No, I agree. So if you look at the sociological studies about the Tea Party, they back up what you just said, Fritz. They What they show us is that the Tea Party is associated with white Christian nationalism. A uh, great sociologist at University of Connecticut named Ruth Bronstein has studied this extensively and can show you the data on that. So that is that hypothesis has been backed up. The problem with the Tea Party is that if, if you talk to Tea Party folks, they will say, oh, no, I just want smaller government, lower taxes. This has nothing to do with race. I was on a, a radio program in the Deep South uh, just recently, and I talked about this very issue, and I got a lot of angry callers saying, how dare you? And I guess my response is, this is pretty typical of this country's response as a whole. You sell something as states' rights, smaller government, family values. And when you dig deeper, what you find is a, a motivating force of a desire for white Christians 
uh, to be the ones who are on top of the social hierarchy. It's not that other people can't be part of the American club. It's just in order to be a member, a real member, you need to be a white Christian. Now, other people can have a day pass or they can come in the club <laughs> if they come in with somebody who's a member or, you know, they can hang out for a short time as a guest. But if you want to be a real member uh, with decision making uh, capacities, who who actually has the, the chance to shape the place? Well, we really want it to be somebody with that kind of identity. The Tea Party shows us that so many things since then. Uh, demonstrate demonstrate that, unfortunately, and it, it's not going away. Well, you know, we called um, a, a lot of what they were saying out loud dog whistles. And if you if you study the civil rights movement, you know, they were accused of being communists, et cetera. It was really, you know, that's really not what it was about at all. Of course, if they found something like someone's homosexuality, they were going to run with that. I mean, they still run with whatever they can. But at the core, I mean, because you break it down in the, um, the what was the name of your, your miniseries, The Orange Curtain? The, the Orange the, Wave. The Orange Wave. You break it down in terms of like they tried issue after issue after issue to, you know, like get people excited about being being conservative and the one thing that really stuck was the Civil Rights Act and the segregation academies that followed. It was like, oh, this is definitely hitting a nerve. So talk, talk about that history a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a history of the, of the 1960s that really sees the attempt to integrate schools all over the country. And that could be in, in the Deep South. Uh, we also in California have, you know, segregated schools and where I come from in Orange County, uh, you know, Latinx, Latino students went to a different school up until uh, the late 20th century. And so uh, in order to do that, you have to kind of have uh, court cases and a lot of movement and et cetera. Well, by the time the, the schools are supposed to be integrated, uh, we find out that a lot of the white kids aren't there because they've been put in private schools. Those private schools are run by churches. And surprise, surprise, those churches or those churches and schools are for whites only. So you start to realize that the private schools run by the church is a segregation academy and that the reaction to Brown v. Board uh, education and and uh, the integration efforts was one where religion was hiding the racist uh, impulses. And so uh, that is a motivating factor for many people in the, the 50s, 60s and early 70s to get involved in politics as white Christian nationalists because they feel like they have a right to keep their school segregated. They don't want their kids going to school with black kids, with kids of color. And then from there, abortion is the other issue, right? If we introduce abortion now, and it's not only that we don't want our kids going to school with black kids, but hey, the other side is trying to kill babies. Uh, what about that? So you introduce that abortion issue and uh, all of a sudden you really have a political movement that takes shape. And that's really the antecedent to what we see today uh, in someone like Speaker Mike Johnson. Absolutely. Scott, I want to ask you a question, but first I just want to tag on to what Brad said. A glaring example of having an agenda hidden beneath another agenda is the, the state politics that have been going on in Tennessee, where they got these two black guys, these wonderful, the charismatic uh, uh, people uh, uh, blasted out of the assembly, uh, really for these 
superficial and not very reasonable uh, reasons, which was being disruptive in an assembly meeting, when in truth, it was getting the two black guys in the assembly well, out of the assembly. They were advocating for gun for gun safety. Yeah, well, that's not what, what they were advocating for doesn't even matter. You could see in the movement of the white guys that ran the place what they were trying to do. Am I yeah, right? Yeah, the Tennessee too, um, I think, and Tennessee politics in general are really good uh representation of what's happened since the Tea Party, because uh, Tennessee, if, if you look in the sort of early aughts, was was a, you know, slightly right of center, moderate kind of place. It is now a deep, deep, deep red place where uh, we see things that harken back to the Jim Crow, Jim Crow era and other times uh, where two young black uh, legislators are expelled, uh, where uh, we see some of the most um, just draconian laws surrounding reproductive rights and education being put into place. And so Tennessee is one of the kind of labs for conservative politics around the country, in addition to Florida, in addition to Texas. Um, It does not have to be this way. I will just remind people that outside of Nashville, uh, 20 miles uh, southwest is Franklin. They had a mayoral race this past month. And a woman who was accompanied by literal Nazis to one of the forums yeah, yeah. was uh, she got 20 percent of the vote. Now, some people say, well, only 20 percent. Yay, that's good. She lost. I'm thinking if we line up one out of five people in that town, they were like, I'll vote for the lady with the Nazis. No problem. OK. Yeah, that's um, a George now, Wallace chunk of voters, which is very scary. 20 percent. Exactly. And then you go the other way from Nashville, about 40 minutes and you get to Murfreesboro. Now, some people remember Murfreesboro because they tried to prevent the mosque from being built uh, during the Obama era, that this was the Tea Party time, but then just recently passed an ordinance that said homosexuality is not allowed in public because it is lewd. It is uh, sexually uh, indiscreet. So just to be a gay person walking down the street in Murfreesboro up until uh, about a week and a half ago was considered to be uh, sexual misconduct. Um, So for me, we can talk about civil war. I think we should talk more about the little fires and little fascists everywhere that are uh, already uh, conducting business in a way that that really reminds us of places that uh, Americans don't like to be associated with, whether it's Putin's Russia or Orban's Hungary or uh, a regime in the 30s and 40s in Germany. Well, I'd like to share a personal anecdote because I, I know that things are really scary, but I tend to be an optimist. So I was in... Franklin for a wedding and it was right before the election and I was really keenly interested in the number of lawn signs because I had never seen I know nothing about local Tennessee politics I'd never seen this many lawn signs the lawn sign game in Franklin was fire okay and it was Kenmore 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 mayor not a Nazi you know And so they're pushing back hard. And when you're willing to, I'll say this, Brad, when you're willing to put a sign on your lawn, which is right next to your window that someone could throw a rock through, you are boldly saying, we don't want a Nazi to be our mayor. So they are pushing back in Franklin. I I will give them credit. That's great. Scott, I can ask you a question. The the title of your podcast and your book is Chapel Probation. I don't know what that is, but I just love it. (laughs) <laughs> it means you can't go to chapel, Fritz, because you're on probation. Oh, well, it means you miss too many chapels oh. and they put you on probation. Oh. And you have to write, you know, at, at the school I taught at, they made you write an, an essay. Oh. Um, oh. Brad went there, but I don't think he was ever on chapel probation. But at some point, they make you pay money too, so it, it's it can raise revenue for the school. Okay, so Brad um, went the to the same school is, where you taught. 
Yeah, we were there at the same time. Oh. We never, our paths never crossed. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm older. I'm okay. a Gen Xer. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so where did you go to college, Scott? Oh, I went to UC San Diego. Went to a regular school. Um, but I was unfortunately involved. I was a strong evangelical Christian. So I, of course, found a Christian group to be involved with. I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Um, but yeah, I got a good education. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to APU, I was horrified to see the level or the, the low level of academics that exist in these schools. Um, it's equal parts sort of indoctrination center and maybe third rate uh, education for higher ed. And they're, and they're also keeping information from kids. It's like they're as actively as they're imparting knowledge, they're preventing knowledge from making its way to the minds of young, impressionable people. What do you notice about that culture and the kids that arrive there? Yeah, the kids that arrive there pick a place like that to not have to deal with people like me and Brad. Mm -hmm. They they definitely want their their sort of shallow theology reflected back at them and their worldview, generally conservative. Um, but they also like the idea of a fancy degree. So the, the school tries to have it both ways where they say, we're a top-notch university. We, you know, we're number 260 <laughs> in, on, the, on the U.S. News and World Report list. And, you know, they'll brag about that. But really... To your point, they do, you know, I was, I taught in the English department and I think they did a pretty good job. We, we didn't censor any, any texts, um, but other, other departments definitely did. And we're definitely pushing sort of to Brad's earlier point, anti-abortion views in, you know, their sociology classes or psychology classes, anti-LGBTQIA views. Um, I write in my book how, you know, the, the film professors wouldn't let their kids watch R-rated movies. So I don't know how you teach film without, you know, R-rated movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's great PG and PG-13 movies, I suppose, but but that's kind of the the the, the an example of what they they're trying to do. They're trying to thread that needle of staying pure and staying conservative, but also saying, but also we're a, a top-notch university studying all these things. Well, your show, you speak often and use terms. You're talking to a lot of people who have been down the path that you've been down, which is, I, I would imagine, is lonely and scary to come out the other side and say, what now? I'm at the edge of the earth. What am I'm in free fall. What's going to happen to me? And it seems like there's a podcast community there to embrace folks that really are, are, are really terrified. And there you are. And you use words like deconstruction, decolonizing. Explain to us seculars what those terms mean. Oh, yeah. Brad probably has better academic terms for this. But but yeah, let me. I'll just say there are a couple of uh, podcast networks. Brad used to be on something called Irreverent, which has a whole bunch of great sort of ex-evangelical podcasts. Yeah, so I think Scott can talk about decolonization really well. You know, the idea of deconstruction is that when you leave a religious tradition, you sort of take all the pieces apart that you were taught. The reason that that's hard for many of us is because the religious tradition you were in, not casual. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to go over here to, uh, to, to temple or to synagogue, you know, once a week. We're talking about religious traditions that demand your entire social, economic, uh, and uh, and religious life be tied together. So when you leave that, 
you really have very little resources to understand yourself or your world. So you deconstruct everything. And it is quite terrifying and difficult for people of color. That often means deconstructing the racial identity that they'd been learning because the spaces they were in were predominantly white and really had some negative implications about being a person of color. And Scott, this is where I think you probably have a, a really kind of insightful understanding of what it means to decolonize your understanding of yourself after this kind of uh, exit from a religion. Well, we both do, and we've we've talked at length about this. But yeah, coming out, we knew we were Asian. <laughs> that sounds funny <laughs> to say. We we had mirrors, <laughs> um, but we, we and so we knew we were different. But we also knew that uh, I think someone made an earlier point about you, you trying to you're trying to fit in, you're trying to do what it takes, and so we tamp down those things that make us too different, and so we become sort of like honorary white people. Um, so we can fit in. And when you when you look back at that and you think, oh, my gosh, I was I was denying who I was so I could fit in and, and be a full or what I thought was a full um, member of of this group. But luckily in, in my book, you know, I, I, I leaned into my Asian Americanness as I was deconstructing. So I was kind of swapping out <laughs> church for uh my identity as an Asian American in, in Los Angeles. And, and Brad has the same, same stories. You know, we, we, we always, we would tell Asian jokes, you know, before, before the, the white folks could tell them, we would tell them. And that was our signal to say, we're okay. You know, we're, we're not, we're not going to cause trouble. It, you know, if, if we hear these things, cause we'll say it first. Ha ha ha. Uh, okay. Let's talk about something else. So and so, but you realize doing that, it, it takes a toll on your soul and um, your, your self-confidence and, and um, your, even your family relations. You know, it's, it's tough to be proud of who you are when your day-to-day -day life is spent trying to approximate something else that, that you're not. Wow. Yeah, I, your your uh, concentration, Scott, is in colleges and universities evangelical bent. And you had a yeah. great podcast, and you've had several, I guess, with Ryan Stoller, who went to Gutenberg University, which is in the Pacific Northwest, right? And I, I thought it was fascinating that Gutenberg is what they call a great books university, where yeah. their whole right. curriculum is reading the best, uh, the, like the top 80 um, uh, pieces of literature respected in the world, yet it's evangelical. Well, if you read the top 80 books in the world, they don't all have a Christian bent. They don't all uh, proselytize about evangelicalism. How do they square that with their evangelical teaching? I'm, I'm guessing they don't read all of them. <laughs> and, you know, anytime you talk about great books, you, you, you bring up the, the, the whole... Uh, you know who who decides who the, who's, right, right. whose books are great, and if you look at that list, it's probably ninety nine percent white male writers with some women thrown in there. So, wow, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I had never even heard of Gutenberg. It's fun doing the podcast because I thought I knew a whole bunch of Christian colleges, but mm -hmm. people email me every week saying, hey, "I went to this school," and I'm like, "Where in the hell is that?" Um, Ryan's an interesting guy. He calls himself a child liberation theologist. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 great, and and he he was homeschooled, and so he talks about the Christian sort of curriculum that's built into most of American homeschools. Most, a lot of people who aren't even Christian will homeschool their kids for whatever reason. 
and don't even realize that they're using a curriculum that was created by you know Bob Jones University or Pensacola. Um, when I started so, listening to you guys, I called my daughter, who was homeschooled for a year. She was between Catholic schools, and yeah. uh, and and I said, was there any um, evangelical or or Christian or religious flavor in any of your work? She said, no. Ours was done through the public school system, so yeah. it wasn't. This this is before the evangelicals bought up like ninety percent of the homeschooling industry. Yeah. But talk a little bit about the Duggar family and. I can't remember the initials associated with where they go, but it's it is a deep doctrine where folks really are in a cult living in their own home but in a cult and they don't know anything outside of these beliefs and what they're taught. So what what is that called again? IBLP. IBLP and that stands for Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Well, well, yeah. yeah. So what happens is they're just supposed to have a lot of kids and they're supposed to corporally punish them so that they're all in line. And and, And then what do you find in terms of people growing up, maybe going to one of these these affiliated colleges and then coming to you and saying, now what? I'll jump in and say, I think the two things are related. So, you know, Fritz, you asked about the 80, the 80 most, you know, well-respected books, a great book program, right? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen in that curriculum is that they're going to tell you is all of these great writers, Aristotle to Plato to uh, Marcus Aurelius, all the way to Aquinas and Calvin and and Luther. um, These are folks who built Western civilization. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Western civilization happens to be built on White people. Christianity. Oh, Christianity. Right? And And white Christianity. You're exactly (laughs) right. So what they're going to do to square the circle is say, hey, you see all these classic texts that are the foundational ideas of our civilization? They're all in line, whether explicitly or implicitly, with our ideas of a great Christian civilization. So yes, Aristotle might not have been a Christian, but you can see in his ideas something that really lines up with God's plan for society. And really inspired someone like Thomas Aquinas, who's one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. So that's how they're going to square the circle. Mm -hmm. And for me, the great books ties in exactly with what Louise is asking about and what you're asking about in terms of homeschooling, because the whole idea is restrict the material and teach it in a way that tells one certain story. So I could be at that college and get one story about Western civilization. And guess what? Guess what I'm not reading? I'm not reading James Baldwin. I'm not reading Toni Morrison, right? Right. right. I'm not reading uh, The Feminine Mystique. I'm going to read, you know, only the things they want me to read to tell me a certain story about Western civilization. And I'm probably coming from a homeschool setting where the whole goal has been not to have an educational system based on inquiry and curiosity, but to reduce the landscape, reduce the lens so that I only see, right, the Bible, I only see the things that support the story I'm telling about the Bible, about the creation of the world 10,000 years ago, about the ways that men and women are supposed to relate to each other, the ways that the family is supposed to be structured, the ways that the government should support the church. So it's all about restriction in order to keep a story. And Scott, by the time they arrive at your doors, they're like, hey, this story isn't working for me anymore. Is Is that how it works? Yeah, well, in the case of IBLP, that's a really extreme one. And I've had several guests, on, and I think you have too, um, who have come out of that. And that's going to be a lifelong journey, extricating themselves from 
the psychological damages and even the physical damages done to them in that setting. The fact that they had that reality show for so long and it was beloved by America was kind of like what we're talking about overall here. You know, America assumes that if, if you if you are part of something that's Christian, you get the benefit of the doubt that you're a good family values group of people. But really, that is one of the most insidious and abusive uh, settings that you can find that in, I think in, this, in, in our world. I think sure. a lot of religion is born out of superstition. And, you know, you were talking on one of your shows recently, Scott, about, I can't remember the term for it, but people with OCD are drawn to these types of absolutes where it's, you do this, you know, you know, watch people praying the most fervent version of every religion and you see them davening or, or you know, bowing and it's it's it it feels very much like behavior that that where you're hoping if I do this seven times in each direction that God will favor me and so there's a I would imagine a terror in leaving that behind you know baseball player not tapping you know second base on his way to the outfield and not doing the thing that you think has kept you safe or you're not quite sure but there there's a lot of OCD mm-hmm. and that I think is wrapped up in in this and leaving it is must be extremely agonizing yeah especially if you came out of one of those high control settings it's absolutely terrifying because your whole system of belief worldview your day-to-day life is all centered around that that belief and and that community i i think i had it a little easier because i did i went to a chill (laughs) christian uh church and you know, we could watch movies, we could listen to music, but in some of those places, like they literally tell you can't watch, they don't have TVs in their house because they don't want that influence. They don't, they're not allowed to listen to music that has beats on two and four, snare, snare hits on two and four because that's of the devil. And that's a whole r- racist kind of thing that they attribute to Africa for some reason. Or to um, any drummer who knows that, you know, you have to accent on two and four. Yeah. Those. Yeah. I always ask, can you do it in five or seven? You know, just, um, <laughs> you know five. You were, I, I think, Brad, you brought up an interesting comment that <clears throat> um, that people, the, the evangelical colleges and universities are made up of mostly people who are homeschooled because their 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 thought process and their spirituality, spirituality has been compressed and funneled that way. And that's so sad because college is the time when you're supposed to, and we're seeing that right now with the whole Palestinian and Israeli argument. It's scary, but it is college students just kind of trying to figure out what they believe in. And that's what every child is supposed to do in a college environment. But if your stuff is pre-honed before you get there, then it's not that growth process at an evangelical Mm. university. Yeah, like you're supposed to figure out how I would make a better world. Like, what what ideas am I bringing to this adulting? And they're not permitted to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is actually a great way to counter the messaging by Moms for Liberty or anyone else who's trying to ban books and really restrict school curricula. I think for me, the, the best way to talk to that parent uh, who is trying to figure out, you know, what's best for their kid or should they listen to that Moms for Liberty person over there or not is to say to them, look, um, education is about discovery. Education is about curiosity. And I want my kids to go to a school that fosters that. I want them to discover the world and all its beauty and all its wonder. And you know what? Sometimes it's going to be too much. And there's going to be things that are hard to understand. And you know what? 
I'm a parent. I'm going to step in when that happens. I'm going to help them get there. I'm going to trust that we can do that as, as parents. But for me to say that I want my kid to go to a school that's actively shutting down wonder and curiosity, well, that just doesn't sound like education or the kind of school that I would ever dream of. And so, hey, soccer mom, hey, suburban parent, hey, person trying to figure out who to vote for for the PTA, school board, et cetera, let's just prioritize discovery and wonder. And then let's trust ourselves as parents when it's time to help our kids understand really hard stuff. What do you think? I think you're a pretty good parent, Jane. Hey, Jeff, I think you're a pretty good dad. You can do that, right? I mean, nothing to be scared of sending your kid to school. Or that, you're, you're a really good parent. You can handle this. Or that we've given them the problem-solving skills to think on their own. Exactly. You know, and if you've, all you've done in the first 18 years with them is tell them the answers, then they are not prepared for wonder, for curiosity, for doubt, to question. They're not. They just have been trained to obey. But I want to I want to enter this part of the conversation uh, while I while we have you guys uh, so valuable to us. Uh, we know that these ideologies has infiltra- have infiltrated American politics and mainstream media will only sparingly use the word Christian when explaining the motives of certain politicians. They usually say things like far right or extreme right. They will occasionally say Christian nationalism, which really does not sound scary to religious folks who believe that we are a country founded on Judeo-Christian values and principles. But Christian extremists in our country are attempting to align the world for Christ's return. They do not care what they do to our planet while they do this. They want to usher in a white theocracy in which our rights, our vote, our free press, our individual humanity are gone. And so knowing this helps understand the motives of the key players of key players on the political stage. Can you itemize who is involved in the new apostolic reformation or the seven mountains principles? Are we talking Rick Perry, Mike Huckabee, Sarah Palin, Newt Gingrich, Michelle Bachman, Ginny Thomas, Mike Pence, Mike Flynn, and of course, Speaker (laughs) Mike Johnson. We got all the mics. Am I correct? Beware the mic. Beware the mic. (laughs) That's that's a lot of names. So uh, what I'll just say is, um, I think you're absolutely right that uh, you know, when we say uh, Christian American, um, you know, as somebody who's a scholar of religion, what, what, what we would say as scholars is Christian is not a positive or negative word. We're not giving it a charge, mm-hmm. right? We're not giving it a, a, a positive or a negative. We're just saying that's a descriptor. All right, this person says they're Christian. Great. Okay. Now, that could mean they're the kind of Christian who says, hey, I want to live in a multi-ethnic pluralist democracy where my neighbor has the right to practice their Judaism, to practice their atheism, to practice their Satanism, whatever. And we all try to live by the the, the creed of equality, liberty, the pursuit of happiness for all people. Okay, that you're that kind of Christian. That's cool. There are, however, and this is what you're getting at, many Christians in the country who would say, yeah, you know what Christianity means to me? It means this is a Christian nation built for and by people like me. And I want this place to look how I want it to look because I think that's what God wants it to look like. And so I'm going to do everything I can to instill in the country's laws, in its culture, in its economy, a vision for how God wants it. I'm going to be God's agent on earth. Uh, If God is the one who has dominion over the earth, then I'm going to be God's dominator on earth. So the seven mountain mandate is the idea that Christians should not work with their neighbor, that they should not work alongside other people in American democracy, but they should conquer 
the American government, American economy, American media, American arts, American culture, and they should have full control over it for God. That sounds a lot like what you said, uh, a theocracy or something like it. The person who really is the most uh, kind of visible at the moment uh, who, who has these kinds of leanings is the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Uh, he has deep ties to the Seven Mountain Mandate uh, theology. He has uh, longstanding relationships with pastors who uh, have been key players in this uh, movement. And I wrote for Rolling Stone last week that uh, he flies a, a flag outside of his office, the Appeal to Heaven flag, that is used by people in this movement to call for an American revolution via spiritual warfare. So in my mind, if you have that guy who is second in line to the presidency. I mean, if, if the president dies, we got one person and then he's up. Uh, it's pretty scary to think that he would have these kinds of views and practice his faith in this kind of way. Does that mean I'm anti-Christian? No, it just means I'm pro-democracy. I'm pro-pluralism and I'm pro-multi-ethnic, multi-racial American Republic. So it's not about being against Christianity. It's about being against any form of religion that uh, would somehow tramp on the American creed of liberty, equality, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, since we woke up one day and it's all of a sudden, oh, we have a new speaker. His name's Mike Johnson. Who's this guy? Google him. <laughs> so since they elected him, how many of them are in his camp? They just don't say it out loud to us seculars. There, so I think one of the best behind the scenes stories uh, comes from Ann Nelson at the Washington Spectator, who really shows that uh, an organization called the Council for National Policy uh, has been the incubator for Mike Johnson for decades. Mm. And the Council for National Policy is kind of an overarching uh, organization that kind of holds together the network of the NRA, the Heritage Foundation, the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list, all of the uh, the institutions on the American right that have a lot of influence over uh, our politics the Council for National Policy is kind of the, the overarching pantheon of decision makers. Mike Johnson's been part of that for decades. It kind of birthed him as a political agent. And so when the Republicans were just fighting and infighting endlessly about who was going to be next speaker, they finally landed on this guy who seems very milk toast. He seems very plain. And guess what? The American public will accept it, right? He's not Jim Jordan. He's not Matt Gates. He's not Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's fine. Yeah, he's just a quiet lawyer. Nobody will know. And then you start digging in and you realize that the quiet lawyer might be the most extremist speaker of the House that we've ever had. Let's talk about another aspect of his life, which is Covenant Eyes app and the uh, purity culture, <laughs> which is the wackiest part of this dude. Look, at Brad. Oh, Brad's having now. a convulsion. Yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> So, Scott, I'll throw it to you, but Covenant Eyes is the 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 app you, you use if you don't want to uh, find yourself looking at sexually explicit material. So the way this works in evangelical culture is you're supposed to have an accountability partner, and you, you basically fess up if you look at something that is sexually explicit, pornography or whatever it may be. This app sends an email to your partner. So if Scott was my accountability partner, he would get an email saying, Onishi over there is looking at whatever he's looking at. You better ask him about it. The creepy part for Johnson is that his accountability partner happens to be his 17-year-old son. That's and so there's a dark. whole host of issues there. And I'll just let Scott Several uh, take levels it from here because right there. Oh. Yeah, I'm getting creeped out just talking about it. So Scott, <laughs> you got to take over. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> A lateral. <laughs> My kids are grown. I, I really don't want to know 
what, what, I mean, I'm not going to judge them on it. You mean you don't care if they go to heaven? I, uh, well, if all those dudes named Mike are going to be there, I, I don't think I want to go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, that is yeah, a good I, point. I don't have a lot to say. It, it's, I'm just probably like, like y'all were I'm just jaw on the floor. I, I, you know, I'm, I left Christianity around 15, 16 years ago. And so this is before all, all of this technology enabled this purity culture madness. So I, yeah, I'm just, I, I got nothing. We're, um, we're not going to let you off the hook, but I have to ask you another question. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and, and either can answer. For those of you who have sort of found their way and gotten a, a, a grain of sense, left the evangelical movement, do they remain Christian, some of them, or do they completely cast aside Christianity when they do that? Yeah, a lot of them have. I'd say 30% of my, the guests on chapel probation are, are still some kind of Christian. Um, we, we call Episcopalianism sort of the last stop of faith. Uh, for people who are deconstructing. So a lot of people end up there. I I was there for a little bit, but I, I couldn't hang. I liked having my Sundays off. Um, I'm not, but, I'm not. Yeah, I would say a lot of, there's a lot of progressive uh, Christians. I, I just read an article the other day. Someone sent me about this, what was called the rise of uh, the Christian left. I, I don't know if it's big enough to be a movement to, to, to move the needle in any direction as far as Christianity goes, but they are out there and and they're they're fighting the good fight from from inside. Scott, I'm not done talking about sex. Because Okay, well that's actually more interesting. Than, on on than your podcast, you you note the phenomenon that when young boys come to college and they've been suppressing their sexuality, maybe even told that they're not supposed to masturbate or do anything healthy that would you know teach them what sex feels like or how to relieve the, the sexual tension that that folks have they come to college and they just swing their dicks around you know a lot more than what you would find at at a more mainstream university talk about that phenomenon a little bit oh yeah okay that's that's a good one actually <laughs> it i think everyone listening would be surprised to hear that the the boys dorm at evangelical schools are are naked fests that they, they they love to be naked and brag about being naked at apu the dorm the boys dorms for the whole time i was there the one of the sayings was nudity is community wow and you I can un, you can spend a long time sort of unpacking that uh psychologically <laughs> developmentally um i i think it's partly you know that because purity culture is so so demanding and so harsh that this is a safe way to to push boundaries a little bit just just guys being guys uh whipping their dicks out and um I, yeah i'm not not having been in i don't know was it that way when you were there brad was there a lot yeah, of, a lot of yeah. Nakedness? and i you know i think i think what is there too is this sense of um you know, in these cultures, you're not really allowed to be in touch with your body. Like you, you can't, your sexuality is suppressed. Uh, you're not supposed to do things like drink or, you know, something as mild as like smoking a joint or taking a gummy. Right. So you, you can't do that. You can't even, you're not even supposed to swear. Right. You're not even supposed to use, you know, certain words. So all, when you're 19, all of that suppression leads to uh, what I would just say are alternative methods of 
expressing some of that uh, that desire and that uh, energy. So I think in youth group culture, and I also think in like the male dorms in these colleges, you really do get this sense of like, well, we're not allowed to have sex or drink or do drugs or cuss or really anything. It's kind of transgressive for us to just walk around naked or like, you know, uh, you know, act like that's kind of something that's pushing the boundary, because at least that's some weird way of being in touch with our our body. Uh, I think another way uh, that people don't realize is the like very thriving like hardcore Christian music scenes um, where people like uh, mosh and and run into each other. And you think, well, that's weird. Why would these evangelicals do that? And it's like, because it's a way for them to be like feeling their body. Physically a, touching. A, yeah, just, exactly. And, and, yeah. and, ex, and like expending energy without the guilt of, you know, what they think of as sinning in terms of a sexual encounter or getting drunk or, you know, doing anything else that you would think young people do at that age. And so, um, I just think this is an off, like a, a an offshoot of uh, uh, deep forms of suppressing desire. Mm-hmm. They're walking around naked to show off the equipment they're not allowed to use. I, I, I yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm sure that that's some measure of freedom because they haven't had any. Let's so, talk about purity balls, though. I'm just fascinated by the whole purity aspect of it. Yeah. A purity ball is that's so interesting, and again, it's that parent. Uh, you know, the, the father-daughter thing, it's just very, very dicey. Explain yeah. that, boys. Um, so, mm. yeah, go. Oh, no, you go, man. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, take this. Uh, you know, if you think about the South, we have what, what we think of as a debutante ball, right? So this is a time traditionally, and this still happens, when a young woman at age, you know, fill in the blank, 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, is presented to society and she is open to suitors so you can come over and court her in her plantation house or whatever. Okay. <laughs> uh, a purity ball is a simulation of that. But what it is instead is a father accompanying his daughter to a ball as a stand-in for her future husband. And it is the daughter who will, uh, in a in a kind of coming-of-age ritual, dedicate herself to sexual purity before marriage and promised to her dad that she will do that as a kind of promise to her future husband. And she will do so dressed as a debutante, usually in a big gown and looking like one might imagine a Southern belle uh, to be dressed in a ritual like this. So as you say, Fritz, there's so many cringy aspects of this, namely uh, a, a young girl being accompanied by her dad as her date, her promising to him that she'll be sexually pure as if he owns her and as if her his ownership of her is transferred only when she marries another man who then owns her or has authority over her. And uh, the whole affair, you know, as many people have noticed, reeks of incestual sort of uh, components and um, really kind of grody uh, ideas about female sexuality and uh, the ways that men uh, have control over women's bodies and so on and so forth. So the purity ball we're not making it up. If you're listening at home and you just dropped a dish or if you skid it off the road because you're listening <laughs> in your car, uh, we're not being funny. The, this exists. You, no. there, there's a documentary. There's all kinds of stuff that will help you does, at the does, understand balls, this more. At the purity balls, are there slaves that wait on you? Um, not at Ooh. the uh, not at uh, not at the ones that uh, people are. Um, you said a southern well, letting the documentary cameras into, but there are some really problematic uh, sure racial are. components, if if I can put right. it that way. Does yeah. Dad have an app that tracks her purity? I don't mm. want to know. Um, <laughs> I, I I will say that. Um, so so I, here's what I will say: Covenant Eye. You know how Covenant Eye started with Mike Johnson? It mm-hmm. started because. 
the guy who who created that app realized that his daughter had a, a smartphone and she was sexting with her boyfriend. So here's a 17 year old you know person in a relationship. And they are sexting, right? And they both have smartphones. So the dad realizes, unless I have access and control over the smartphone, I don't know what my daughter is texting. I don't know what she is sending. And I don't know who's getting it. So I'm going to invent Covenant Eyes. So Covenant Eyes was not invented for Mike Johnson and his accountability partner to be whatever. It was invented because his dad wanted to know if his daughter was sending topless photos to her boyfriend. Mm. It's just like this endless... Yeah. Attempt to uh, control, yes, the behavior of, of women, and that yeah. has gone out. You know, you start with the chastity belt, and you work your way forward, where men just cannot, you know, wrap their mind around the idea that if I am am in a healthy relationship that is built on trust, I don't have to worry about this, and she doesn't have to worry about this because we're we love each other and we trust each other like that's just you're leaving too much to chance i guess when you rely upon trust so i want to talk before we close about uh just i mean i don't know i know we don't know all of what goes on but it's certainly to me the dots are so close together that it just takes like one pencil line to connect them so when you've got the um the fundamentalists put laying their hands on trump who's a thrice-divorced pussy grabber and clutching their pearls and screaming to the winds when Obama, once married, <laughs> dedicated husband and father of two beautiful daughters, was, you know, that was a problem. But Trump is the delivery uh, by Jesus of uh, preordained, you know, divinity as our president. It doesn't take much to stretch the line past Trump into Putin as being a coalition partner for the welcoming of Christ's return to earth. I mean, what do you guys see? I mean, because Putin is good at shape-shifting. He'll say to anyone, oh, you love Jesus? We love you. You love guns? We love Oh, my God. We have so much in common. Like, that's that's your guy if you want someone, if you want the kind of friend that's going to tell you he loves what you love. So what are you guys' view when it comes to, like, these event, this this breed of evangelical Christians— then Trump, and then Putin. I'm going to throw that to Brad. I'm more the dicks and balls part of the conversation. Good for you, Scott. I have, more, <laughs> yeah, I have own, a lot more respect for you. Own your now. field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to stay in my lane yeah. over here. So. so what I would say about, um, about evangelicals on Putin is this, is that uh, – they have been enamored with him for a long time. It's not just in 2016 or 17 when Trump comes around. It is going back to the the late 90s, early 2000s. And why? You say, why? Why would you be enamored with Putin? And here's why. Putin is the leader of the whitest country on earth. He has all but outlawed being gay in public. Uh, he will have draconian, violent measures against immigrants uh, if they try to enter Russia or uh, try to uh, be part of the public square in a way he doesn't like. And he will tell you that, and this is part of the shape-shifting that you mentioned, he will tell you that uh, he's doing this in the name of the spiritual heritage of Russia, the family values, and the great Christian civilization that is Mother Russia. That's why. 
That's so he'll interesting. De- so right? interesting. Plus, he'll, he'll develop. Yeah, go ahead. Aren't aren't people that that love the structure of the church drawn to autocrats, drawn to strong single persons in charge? Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes sense, right? Because if you're somebody who thinks God has a, a, a an ordained order for society, and if you go back to what I said about Mike Johnson, hey, we really want to dominate every aspect of culture, economy, media, art, and government, well, democracy can kind of get in the way. Democracy mm-hmm. means that this judge says that's not allowed, and you know this election didn't go our way, and we're not just allowed to do a Muslim ban for some reason, even though I'm president. And we're not just allowed to kind of do whatever we want when it comes to protesters or something else. So all of a sudden, democracy doesn't look like the sacred value of the American Republic. Democracy looks like the thing that is in the way of us dominating the world for God. And you know who's really good at dominating the world for God? Vladimir Putin. He's a great example of a Christian leader. We want more of that and less of the deep state the bureaucracy, the State Department, the people at a desk saying we're not allowed to do whatever we want. We want to get rid of that so we can just have one guy instituting God's vision in the world, which is just not democracy. And when you're you're teaching people not to read and not to study history, they don't know that Putin was in love with the Soviet era, which was a godless era. And he, this is just convenient for him right now. He, with, under the Soviet rule, they went after the left. They went after people that were disillusioned with capitalism. They went after our left flank and to, with some success. Now, when they're embracing religion, they can go after our right flank. And those people are more easily convinced because they're binary. Uh, people on the left uh, have more layers and nuance that they're always looking for. People on the right are just like you're either right or you're wrong. So if we look at the Republican nominee for Senate in 2020, it's a woman named Lauren Witzka. Okay. And Lauren Witzka will tell you that I wish Vladimir Putin would invade America and save us from the Joe Biden regime because I'm a Christian nationalist and I really think that Putin invading America and taking over would be better than us living under whatever the Joe Biden administration is. Now, that you're saying, well, that's an extreme example. That was a nominee for the United States Senate, not the Delaware Senate, the United States Senate. Now, did she win? No. And and I'm just always going to be a guy that's like, she was still the nominee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She wow. was somebody who said, I think Vladimir Putin is a better example of a Christian leader than Joe Biden, who goes to mass about 18 times a week. I don't know if you, every time you look up, Joe yeah. Biden's at mass, he's always right? Yeah. And, and so he's very religious, but in her mind, Putin is the Christian leader. And that's what I'm talking about. It's really scary to think mm, that you can mm, fashion mm. Jesus out of Putin, but that's what's happening. I want to squeeze in one question before we, we get too late here. Uh, looking forward to 2024, how much of a factor will the evangelical voting bloc be? Will it be as big for Trump as it was in 16 or less, or where do you think they stand? Well, 2016 was 81%. 2020 was 84%. Uh, There's really no indication that anything's changed. Now, the only thing that we can say might have changed is that the the demographic might have shrunk a little bit. It's gotten older. Uh, As Scott is really good at at, uh, pointing out, a lot of young people have left. But in terms of the support per capita uh, among evangelicals, there's no indication that that is going down. Uh, especially when you see someone like Mike Johnson as speaker, right? He's pretty representative of, mm-hmm. of that group. So 
the the thing that I also look for is not just white evangelicals, but white Christian nationalists, people that say this should this is a white Christian nation in some form. That could be Catholics, that could be Mormons, that could be others. So those groups together are really the groups that have the the power to kind of uh I think move the needle. Um the question is, will the 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 fatigue of Trump, the fear of Trump, and the willingness to come out and vote for Biden, will that sort of push us to where we were in 2020 or not? Because uh, you know, it's it's basically a rematch. So yes, there's still a factor. There's no sense that they have changed their minds. It's just a matter of uh, how many of them are left and uh, how many folks on the other side are, are motivated to vote for the other guy. I wow. think that, you know, when you're doing the polling right now, that's alarming. You're asking people, do you support Joe Biden? And it's you're not asking them to make a choice. You're just saying, how do you feel about Biden? Yeah. And they're like, oh, I feel this type of way. When it comes down to voting, I think that what I'm calling the peace of mind vote is going to be a huge factor this time around. The peace of mind vote means waking up every day, checking to see if you got your period and worrying that you may be pregnant and ruining, falling in love, ruining, starting a family, ruining all these wonderful moments where you're haunted constantly by this fear of what if I got pregnant while I'm in college? What if I were pregnant right now? You're just sick and tired of having to worry about that day in and day out. And that's what women of childbearing ages are like very preoccupied with at the at the moment, the other piece of mind vote, which continues to haunt us, is gun violence. Am I comfortable sending my kids to school? Can I, I can I go and have a good time or work without being preoccupied with what if the school calls? What if I get a call from my daughter? Does that mean you know that she's locked in her classroom? Like, people are are sick and tired of having to worry all day. So I think that that's a critical uh, vote factor. But what I want to talk about before I let you guys go you know, really quickly is like, how many people are coming out of this, coming to you, coming to Dan Miller and saying, I need counseling. I'm ready. I'm ready to think for myself. I've had too many thoughts that are in conflict with what I've been taught. Please help me. How many of the kid? what percentage of the kids who grow up this way are coming to you or coming to your podcast and saying, please show me another way of looking at the world and being okay? I don't have numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say a lot, <laughs> um, and I, you know, and Brad can speak to the to the to the research for sure. So anecdotally, you know, I get several emails every week uh, from someone who, and since my show is centered around uh, colleges and universities, I, you know, I get that crowd, and a lot of people who went to these schools um, are are no longer in that faith. When I was teaching at APU. And I hope I can say well, it was public knowledge. <laughs> they, you know, they they do alumni surveys. Uh, you know, did you like the school? What, you know, what'd you like about it? What what didn't you like about it? What was your experience like? And the statistic that made the administration freak out was that despite chapel three times a week, mandatory Bible classes, the 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 alumni of Azusa Pacific for that year, there were eighty percent of them we're not attending church. Wow. Hmm. So you go to these schools to be, you know, to ensure that you will, you will have an adult life that's based in this evangelical Christianity. But <laughs> the reality has been that it, it's almost like a death sentence to your, to your faith to go to these schools. Now, sure. A lot of the, the, the and the, it depends on who's filling these out too. 
Now, I don't think that's 100% participation. But the fact that in that survey, 80% of the, of the students were no longer attending church really freaked them out. Um, and, and from that point on, the school kind of took a hard right. They were trying to be the, more of a university. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah I, yeah, I don't have numbers, but I do know anecdotally that a lot of people wake up one day or, or sit bolt upright in their pew at church and realize, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't make sense. It hasn't, it hasn't ever made sense. And I have all these questions. Um, but I think to Louise's earlier point, it's terrifying if that's your whole life, your whole family goes there, all your friends go there, maybe even some your co- co-workers go there. The idea of leaving this setting um, is terrifying and it takes a lot of courage. And so that's what I always try to do on my show is to honor the people who are telling their stories because they've made a decision and they are following their 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 minds and their hearts to into another life that is completely foreign to them. And uh, I, I hope that the work Brad and I do is, and with Axis Mundi is is helping people be inspired to, to be brave and to, to look at facts and to, to look at possibilities of life that they had previously not known. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys are both offering a spectacular service to Americans of all ages, but particularly young people who are trying to figure out where they fit into the planet. You're both brilliant and uh, just a, a wonderful conversation, especially this time in our history, where we are, not knowing where, what the future brings is really important. You guys did a wonderful job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks, thanks for having, having us. us. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Here comes your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, or we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating on Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our spicy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Brad Onishi and Scott Okamoto. And we will have full links to everything they've created, their books, their podcasts in our show notes. So you don't need to... Try to jot something down while you're driving. Wait until you're home and you can find everything you need about our wonderful guests. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Chris Baldwin, Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise and we will see you along the media path. <laughs>